Good morning, good morning. Am I on loud enough? You hear me back there, guys? Good, thank you. Good morning. I know we have some folks who had some very significant events over the weekend, and maybe your date didn't fall on this weekend, but we want to congratulate all of our college graduates, and we had several this year. So you guys stand up for a moment, our college grads this year. Yeah, I see that. Some are not standing, and quite honestly, it doesn't count until you stand before God with your diploma. So you can stand with that goofy little hat on, the little tassel thing that goes one way or the other, but if you don't stand before God, it's nothing. So sorry you wasted those four years because this is your last chance to stand. Uh, well, what a, what a celebrating morning for us. Uh, baptism represents a landmark in the Christian life. Really, in your journey through life, uh, baptism makes a statement about your faith and your belief that is significant for eternity. And so it's a uh, particular pleasure this morning to be celebrating that personally as you see God's grace, as we sang about this morning, come again to visit your own household you know, when God saves you, you are eternally grateful, but when God begins to reach into your family's life and save your family, uh, you are grateful in a whole new way. And so I'm very thankful for this morning and the landmark that we get to celebrate, that I've gotten to celebrate, and my wife gets to celebrate in Carly's baptism, and I know all of you here with your family. Uh, thank you for coming. Many of you who came to visit today, uh, you picked the worst day of the year to come. Uh, <laughs> There are canoes available after the service to get to your cars, um, but thank you for coming today. Well, this morning, I, I did want to stay within some thoughts of events like these that in the journey of life are landmark events. Right? This is a landmark in the spiritual journey, and you know, all of us are familiar with landmarks. You grew up with landmarks in your life. Now, whether you took notice of them or not, and when you're a kid, this is when I would take notice of landmarks. When I'm driving in the car, it's late, you're tired, you're cranky, and, and you're trying to pick up on a landmark at night while you're sort of driving past things, half falling asleep to figure out how far from home am I? How far from being able to lay down in my bed am I? So I can remember landmarks, like if we were coming from Metairie, I grew up in River Ridge, so if we were driving down Clearview, there was the big guy holding the muffler. Remember the muffler man? Now, he became just a big guy standing alongside the road that no one understood why he's there eventually. Today, if you drive by him, you're wondering, what's that guy doing? He's like an auto title guy now or something. It doesn't make any sense. But that's what he used to be, the muffler man. And I knew how far from home I was based on when we'd passed the muffler man. Or, or if we came from another direction, we came up David Drive, you knew how far from home you were when you passed the garbage dump. Y'all remember the garbage dump on Airline and David Drive? You know, the aroma would let you know you're not too far from home. Uh, if we were going fishing, there were landmarks. You know, we fished way down in, in Port Sulphur, down in Lower Plaquemines Parish. So to get there from River Ridge, it seemed like an eternity. Like we're driving, you're looking forward to it, and it's just taken forever for us to get here. But landmarks like the stinky Chevron plant, just south of Bell Chase, you know that one, would let you know 
right? You, you pick up on that terrible aroma and you knew, okay, 20, 30 minutes before we'll be launching the boat here, right? So life has landmarks. And you know, the good thing about those landmarks is they, they kind of tell you something about where you're at in the journey. Right? So am, I, am I at the beginning? Am I at the middle here? Am I towards the end of the journey? Am I even on the right road, right? Once in a while, my kids will pick up because, you know, they've got landmarks, even the, the little ones who don't drive and I think don't even pay attention to where we're going, but they pick up on landmarks. And so if I decide like, we're going to do a little detour and we've got to make a stop, which, you know, kids hate to make stops on the way anywhere. So we're going to make a stop on the way home. Immediately, if I get off course, they're immediately like, where are we going? <laughs> it's like a siren goes off. We're not going to like a Home Depot, are we? <laughs> they hate Home Depot. Yeah, we're going to Home Depot. They can just pick up. We're off track. See, landmarks tell you whether you're on track, off track, how far you are in the journey. Now, the reality for all of us here this morning, I mean, you're sitting in a church, but even if you weren't here, there would be truth to the fact that you are on a spiritual journey through life. And as a matter of fact, spiritual journey is, is popular language today. You hear it talked about a lot. Celebrities are talking about it. People are talking about it. People are recognizing they're on this spiritual journey, right? So I want to I pick up a few thoughts from some celebrities to help us with this spiritual journey language. CNN interviewed Kirk Douglas. You remember Kirk Douglas, the, the actor? He's 92 years old, and he's looking back on his life. CNN asked him, you've had a really interesting spiritual journey in your life, and you've explored your Judaism much more as you got older. Douglas responded, I studied Judaism a lot. I studied religion in general. And I've never imposed my Judaism on my kids. They are what they want to be. I think you must care for others. That's, that's the correct religion, right? Now, there, there's a measuring point. How do you know whether you're on your journey, right? For him, it's whether or not you are caring for others. If you stop doing that, if you're not doing it enough, you're, you're off the path. So landmarks for Mr. Douglas would involve how well he's caring for others. You have to learn eventually to care for other people. My mother said once to me, and we were very poor, but my mother said, a beggar must give something to another beggar who is worse off than he. And that, was, that struck with, stuck with me. If people give whatever they can give to help other people, we will solve all of the problems of the world. So that's Mr. Douglas' path through life, right? That's the course that he's on spiritually to arrive at some destination. And that, that can be a challenging course to manage, to figure out where you're at. Are you at the beginning, in the middle, towards the end? What happens in the end? How do you arrive at the location you're headed to? Uh, Oprah Winfrey did a, a series of shows. I think it was called Spirituality 101. And, you know, Oprah tries to be rather mainstream, so she picked a topic that was very popular. Spirituality is popular. People want to be in touch with a spiritual dimension in their life. On her program, it says, Oprah's definition of spirituality revolves around the understanding that we are more than what we can physically see. She says, when you begin to realize that you are more than your body, and your purpose is greater than your profession or your career, that every life, because you were born... You have a right to be here, and there's a calling on your life. It means you live your life without fear, and you know that no matter what happens, no matter what happens, you're going to be all right. You're going to be all right. That's what spirituality is for me. 
So there's a path, and it's a very vague path uh, in that quote. But nonetheless, impact from her programs, right? There were folks who responded in, and they were on their own spiritual journeys. Here's a couple of them that were identified in her website. One says, finally now at age 39, after being born and raised into a traditional church environment, attending parochial schools for 14 years, and then taking a step back from organized religion altogether for many years, I feel like I've finally found a pathway to peace and understanding in my life. I've been weak, depressed, sad, and angry at where my life had led me by age 35. But as I opened my mind, so did my life begin to open up to new opportunity. I've found the man who is my true soulmate. I started the adoption process to find the child I am meant to mother. I've moved to a new and beautiful part of the country and I'm living a lifestyle that I could only have dreamed about five short years ago. Now, just, if you just pick apart how people describe their journey, which, what you have from this person is her description of landmarks. She recognizes some landmarks that to her are defining whether she's on a good path or not. Finding a soulmate, uh, having a child that she was meant to mother, living in a beautiful part of the country, a certain lifestyle. Right? Those are landmarks. When she sees those things along this winding path, she gets a sense of reinforcement that I'm, I'm on the right path. Another person responded, I think in order to live a truly spiritual and fulfilled life, you must first begin to be true to yourself. It took me until about two years ago to really get thirsty for my truth. I wanted to stop ignoring the things that have always troubled me about religion and just be real with myself. I'm on that journey now, and it feels great. Right? We're, we're on journeys. All of us are on journeys. But how do you define the journey that you're on? What landmarks stick out that you encounter that tell you whether you're on the right path, whether you're even on the path, whether you've diverted and got off the path that leads somewhere? Andy Stanley has an interesting thought in his little book, How Good is Good Enough. I think this kind of summarizes a broad variety of people's views. He says, if you're like most people, you believe that everybody lives forever somewhere. That once you die, your soul goes somewhere. In spite of all their differences and peculiarities, the religions of this world share one common denominator. How you live your life on this side of the grave determines what happens next. Behave yourself now and you don't really need to worry too much about what happens next, the end. Now let's get back to work, golf, Little League, PTA, the pressing issues of this life. Now even if you bump into most folks, most people are on that path that Andy Stanley just described. They're on, they're on the decency path through life. It's, it's, you don't have to jump large hurdles. You don't have to really be great at much of anything. You just need to be a decent person. Right? If you ask the average guy down the street living two doors down, what's his spiritual path, it's probably just going to sound like, well, you know, I get up, I do the best I can, um, I try to lead a decent life, I provide for my family, do well to my fellow man, and you know, in the end, just hope the man upstairs you know, gives me a break. That's what most people would say. That's their spiritual journey. Now, all of us are on a spiritual journey. So the question is, who do, we, who do we want to consult to figure out whether or not we're on the right journey or not? 
what kind of landmarks should we be looking for to figure out, am I even on the path yet? Am I halfway there? Does this one reinforce? Does that say something? And I see that in my life and that's a good thing or is it a bad thing? So I've decided this morning that we would, we would invite on as our guest a man named Saul of Tarsus, who, as we know, became the Apostle Paul. So this is if Saul of Tarsus were to go on Oprah and he were to talk about his spiritual journey, because, you know, Oprah has on all kinds of guests who talk about spiritual journeys. And it's interesting when she have three or four panelists on, they really aren't saying the same thing. And so they're all kind of hodgepodging through this spiritual menagerie of information. But, you know, when you and I analyze our journey, which we should, I want to I measure it against that which has stood the test of time. I don't want some Johnny-come-lately with a strange hairdo who wrote a book. I want to see and hear from somebody who has stood the test of time. I think the Apostle Paul would be a guy who would be well worth listening to and listening to him describe his uh, journey through life. So turn to Acts chapter 26 with me, and I'm going to introduce the journey of the Apostle Paul in Acts chapter 26. He is not on the Oprah show, actually. He might be more like on the King Agrippa show. But what, what he is describing in this section is a terminology that I want to say is a huge boulder of a landmark in the Christian journey. Now, in spirituality, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put all my eggs and hope in the basket of the Christian journey, that which has stood the test of time. And when we look at that, there is a massive boulder of a landmark that sets at the beginning and determines whether or not you are even on the path. And it's the term I'm going to use today, the term of conversion. And what Paul's going to describe here is, is his conversion moment, this landmark event that he's going to continue to talk about for years and years and years. And you know, you heard it this morning from those who were thinking back to the beginning of their journey and the events that led up to that and that moment of conversion. Right in your outline there, I provided a couple of definitions. One from, I think Carta says, a conversion is a change in the nature, form, or function of something. In a biblical sense, the International Standard Bible Encyclopedia defines Conversion as denoting the human volition and act by which man, in obedience to the divine summons, determines to change the course of his life and turns to God. Arrested by God's call, man stops to think, turns about, and heads the opposite way. This presupposes that the previous course was not directed toward God, but away from him. Conversion is, is a change. It's an altered course. It's a recognition that at some point I was pursuing a direction in life. I, I had a charted course, spiritual, natural. I had certain things that I wanted in my life, who I wanted to be, what I thought was important. And there was this encounter with God that changed that, that sent me in a different direction. And there is, a, I think, an accuracy to, to say these are defining moments for us. These are moments that we should be able to look back to with definition and say, at that point in my life, 
this occurred. Now, I would say this is different than just sort of self-reform. And I think there's, there's an importance to seeing the difference biblically between self-reform and conversion. Conversion is more something that's done to me. Self-reform is something more done by me. It's almost a difference between a caterpillar becoming a butterfly. That's, that's conversion in the biblical sense versus uh, weight loss or just a change of lifestyle on our behalf where we just determine that, you know, from now on, I'm just going to be different in this category, right? I'm going to lose weight. And so over time, we make decision after decision after decision. And, and there's some reform that's taking place that we have decided we're just going to be different in that category, uh, sort of. 12-step programs have that kind of a dynamic to them where we, we decide it's time to be different and we just reform and become different. Conversion in the biblical sense is more what God does to us and we become different in the hands of God. The way in which a caterpillar is no longer a caterpillar. He's now a butterfly. And you might be able to see a little bit of some similarities between the two but the nature of behavior, the nature of pursuit and life is now become vastly different because of what happened to the caterpillar. So more like caterpillar, less than like weight control is conversion in the Christian faith. Look in Acts chapter 26 with me. Paul is recalling in this moment, he's being called before King Agrippa to give an account and he's going to go back to his conversion and explain his conversion to King Agrippa. Now, what I want us to note here is that this is Paul describing his moment of conversion. It's not Paul describing his moment of encountering religion or even being spiritual as a person. I think Paul would have noticed the spiritual category in his life, his whole life. Paul would have been a religious man his whole life, but Paul would not have been a converted man. And that's the story he's telling here. Look in verse 4. He says, My manner of life from my youth, spent from the beginning among my own nation and in Jerusalem, is known by all the Jews. They have known for a long time, if they are willing to testify, that according to the strictest party of our religion, I have lived as a Pharisee. Now listen, I mean, if you're not from the Middle East or you're not from Jerusalem, you didn't grow up around Jewish values, some of these words lose their impact for you to get a sense of who was this Apostle Paul. Let me say it this way. If Paul had been in New Orleans, the New Orleans version of the Apostle Paul, Paul would have told you that he went to church his whole life, he went to St. So-and-so, and he went to parochial school, uh, he was an altar boy, and his dad was a Jesuit, for goodness sake, right? I mean, he'd have, he'd have painted the seriousness of religion in his life. That's who Paul was. So he, he had religion going on in his life. Look in verse 9. He says, I myself was convinced that I ought to be many things in opposition to the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them, and I punished them often in all the synagogues and tried to make them blaspheme. And in raging fury against them, I persecuted them even 
to foreign cities. In this connection, I journeyed to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests. Here is Paul, passionately zealous for his religion. You know, sometimes we think of this conversion of the Saul of Tarsus, and he was persecuting the church, and we paint him into the category of, of, of some thug, like he was some criminal. He was persecuting the church. He was putting people in, in prison. He must have just been some terrible government official that hated God. No, he was not. He was a deeply, deeply religious man who in his understanding was serving God by opposing Christ. He thought Christians were a false religion. Now Paul would become the greatest New Testament figure apart from Christ himself that you and I are aware of. But that was not his starting place. And, and, and just to introduce us into the realm of possibilities, isn't it possible, even for any of us today, to be passionately religious, having a belief in God. Paul was not a heathen. He believed in God. He believed in the Old Testament scriptures. He just didn't have eyes to see how they pointed to the person of Christ. So as a result, he acknowledged the existence of a God, but he was at odds with God's means of saving him. That's what Paul was at odds with. You can't lump Paul completely into this category of he was a corrupt, heathen, violent individual who hated religion. He was a bad man. He was not that way. You'd have been comfortable living next door to Paul. Well, if you were a Christian, you wouldn't have been. But if you were just a normal, decent, moral, religious human being, you'd have walked out in the morning. You'd have had a decent conversation with Paul. He was an upstanding citizen. He was a bright man. But yet he was opposing what God had been speaking of for years. The God that he said he believed in in the Old Testament. The God that he had knowledge about those scriptures in the Old Testament. The system of sacrifice and all that it was portraying to point to the person of Jesus Christ. Paul missed it. Now listen, humbly consider the possibility that any of us here this morning could grow up profoundly religious and yet not understand God's means of saving us. Isn't that possible? You know, from what I see the Apostle Paul, I would consider him a much brighter man than me. And if that was where he was, then I don't have a problem believing I could be there. As a matter of fact, I don't have a problem believing it because that's exactly where I was. Very similar to the Apostle Paul having grown up religious. Look at verse 13. Let's keep reading for a moment. Paul's going to now unpack the event of his conversion. At midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven brighter than the sun that shone around me and those who journeyed with me. And when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. And I said, who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. But rise and stand upon your feet, 
For I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and witness to the things in which you have seen me and to those in which I will appear to you, delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you, to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, and that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me, which up until this moment, Paul had none of. In this conversation with Christ leading into it, he does not have faith, as we heard over and over again today, in the person and the work of Christ. But he's about to leave this meeting a converted man. In this moment, not, not a course that Paul's going to have to work out, not a hill to climb and we'll see how you do and whether you've done enough and then maybe one day you'll graduate and you could become acceptable to God. In this moment, Paul is going to experience conversion in his life. This is a landmark event for Paul that when he tells the story of his spirituality, if he's on Oprah, he's telling the story. He's pointing back to a big rock at a moment in his life where this is what happened to me. I was converted in that moment. And listen, as I'm telling you that about Paul, are you immediately thinking about your own rock? You going back to where your rock is located? See, I'm going back to February of 1979. I'm going back to a season leading up to that, these events that were unfolding for Paul as he tells his story that for me were unfolding. I'm this young high school student asking questions about life, noticing something in me that's sort of missing and empty, and getting around something that was different. I was religious. I grew up going to church every Sunday. We were serious as a family about religion, but I didn't understand how to be saved. I didn't know how to have a relationship with God. I didn't even know that I was actually outside of a relationship with God. Now, I wasn't like Paul going around killing people who call themselves Christians. Probably would insult you and make fun of you, but I wouldn't kill you. Um, But I can remember the moments leading up where things begin to happen and I begin to have a desire to, to read the Bible, read the Bible almost every day over a period of several months, was invited to attend uh, a church service. I think it was taking place on a Friday night in February of 1979 and sat through the meeting. It was in an old movie theater that had been converted into a, a church on Magazine Street uptown and listened. And at the close, the pastor gave an invitation for any who would like to respond to receive Christ into their life. And even though I had known about Christ, I had heard about the cross, I believed and acknowledged the resurrection, I didn't oppose those things, I had never received Christ into my life. That had never happened. And that night, I walked up, walked up the left side of the movie theater, all the way to the front, and went up and prayed a prayer. And in that moment, I was converted, and my whole life began to be affected by that moment, 
the course of my life, the journey of spirituality for me in that moment got redefined. Many things would be unpacked over time that I didn't understand fully in those moments and still coming to understand some of those things now. But in that moment, the landmark event in that moment for me was conversion. Going from being a caterpillar to a butterfly. A new life, a new experience, a new walk with God. Now, if Paul were to unpack this a little bit, if Paul were to go on Oprah, tell his story about the landmark event of conversion, he'd unpack that a bit. He'd explain some of those dynamics that would be part of the landmarks of his conversion and his spiritual journey. Turn to Galatians chapter 2. I just want to pick up on Paul's two or three sentence presentation of his spiritual journey. This would be kind of the sound bite that Oprah would put to advertise for the Apostle Paul coming here tomorrow and you get a sound bite image of the Apostle Paul explaining himself. This, this would be Paul's explanation for his spiritual journey. Galatians chapter 2 verse 20. Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God. For if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. Now, Paul would unpack that so that we could have a better understanding. We'll unpack it a little bit today. But that would be a quick two or three sentence synopsis for Paul of here's my spiritual journey. Here's, and here are the landmarks along the way that I celebrate and I look at. They guide me. They tell me how far along I am. They tell me where I am on this journey toward reconciliation and, and in relationship with God. Right? So let me just walk through a few of these because... I think these would be the places to look and see, does my journey sound like this? Do I have landmarks along the way? Because Paul certainly isn't standing up and proclaiming like a a good postmodern person would do. Paul's not standing up and saying, look, now this is my spiritual journey, you know, and you guys have your own wherever that leads you and however it takes you. No, what Paul did in presenting his spiritual journey, whether it was to King Agrippa or to the Galatians here, Paul framed his spiritual journey as God's path for all to walk on. So I do need to look and see, does the landscape of my spiritual journey sound like this? Right? First, I have been crucified. I have been crucified. Paul's using the imagery here of someone who's been nailed to a cross and has died. This is familiar language in the Bible. And it's a familiar landmark because in a great way, the, the pathway to spiritual Christianity begins with death. Right? You hear it in these invitations throughout Scripture. Mark chapter 8, verse 34. It says, and he called to him the crowd and his disciples and said to them, this is Jesus speaking, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. And here's the introduction to Christianity. Jesus is meeting you, and he wants to introduce you to a relationship with God, and he's, the first place he starts is, you'll need to deny yourself and die. That's the starting point for Christianity. John chapter 12, verse 24, again, Jesus says, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and 
dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. You know, there's a, there's a place where most of us begin, and for me, I, I wasn't shopping for Christianity because I love the idea of dying. You know, this wasn't like a suicide pact. It wasn't like I was studying suicide and fed in it, Googled it. Couldn't Google back then, but, you know, Googled suicide and up pop Bible passages about self-crucifixion. Wow. Well, I think I'll consider Christianity. People don't consider Christianity because they're enamored with the idea of, okay, well, first we're going to die. We consider Christianity because the life we're living right now isn't working. We're coming to a place where we're, we're willing to loosen our grip on this life and lose it. And in that sense, that's the starting place. A willingness to lose my life to God. A willingness to let it die in the sense of, of my ownership of it. And in a spiritual sense, there is a death that takes place. The Bible speaks of it over and over and over again. A death of us being crucified with Christ. And so what's interesting about that is when you and I take this step into death, it's, it's a death that becomes ours, but it was not ours. But it gets applied to us. Again, it's like conversion. It's, it's not what we do, it's what we receive from God. And the language here is a little complicated in this passage. I have been crucified. Uh, some of your translations may say, I am crucified. Crucified. It's probably a little bit more accurate. It, it is the perfect indicative passive tense of a verb. I know that means a lot to you, but um, a, a perfect indicative tense is something that happened in the past and is completed, but continues to have an effect. It's a past completed action with a continued effect, and it is passive because the subject of the sentence doesn't participate in the activity. He simply receives the activity. I am crucified with Christ. It's an event that's already occurred, and I am the recipient of it here years and years later. But yet, I'm crucified with Christ. And this is why this is, this is a death that you and I will never create because it's already happened, and it will only happen once. When Christ died on the cross, that's the only death he will ever die. So he will never be crucified again. So if you and I ever have any hope of the power of the crucified life coming to us, it's going to have to be because we were included in that one event. See, in the same way in which conversion comes to you from God, this death comes to us from God. And it's a landmark event. We begin our Christian life by loosing our life to God. And then he uses this language. I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer, no longer I who live. It's no longer. This is good terminology. Do you look back in your spiritual journey and, and can you find places of no longer? No longer this, no longer that, no longer that way, no longer what characterizes me. I mean, this, this is landmarks on the Christian life. This is, this is why the Bible presents 
repentance to us. This is the essence of repentance. Repentance, when we walk in it, it produces no longers. Repentance, I put in your outline, is a ceasing of one pattern of life, a severing of connection and identification with the life we once lived that was not rightly oriented about God. That's what repentance is. A life that was not rightly oriented about God. Did Paul believe in God? Yes. Before his conversion? Yes. But his life was not rightly oriented about God because he didn't understand the revelation of God. And therefore, he was actually opposing God in his life. If you're like me, you probably have your own definition of what's acceptable to God. I thought I was leading a life that was fairly acceptable to God. I mean, God was included in my life somewhere. He had a place. The problem was his place was not the center. Listen, God, God's not looking to be included in your life. He doesn't want to be a part of the spiritual religious landscape, just another piece added to it. See, God reserves different words than inclusion for himself. Reserves words like worship, passion, and earnest desire. John Piper likes to substitute the word treasuring Christ rather than believing in him. Because I think believing is overused. I think believing for us means mere acknowledgement. Treasuring is different, isn't it? Worshiping is different. See, God doesn't want to be included in your life. He wants to consume your life and to be the most important aspect of everything about you. If he is anything less than that, then we have a problem in our relationship with him. That's the starting place. And it's that starting place that that brings about no longers in our lives. When God gets oriented correctly into our lives, there's a bunch of stuff that becomes no longer. Galatians 6 verse 14 says, but far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Now, now, every Christian, every person here for a moment, stop and, and look back down your spiritual journey and find out, can you find a landmark where your relationship to the world changed? Can you find a place where it suddenly made great sense to you to change the way you looked at the world? You didn't just go with the flow of the world. You didn't just accept the value system of the world. You didn't just follow the pathway of the world. There were things about the world that you all of a sudden realized, that's not right. That idea is not right. And people shouldn't believe that way. And I shouldn't believe that way. And why do people practice that? That you know, as a matter of fact, when I look at the world, I, I find that God's not in this world correctly. The world, right, this, the community of humanity doesn't orient its life around God correctly. God is out of place. So therefore, I, I don't feel comfortable relating to the world the way I once did. Do you, do you look back and find a rock alongside your pathway that says, yeah, I, I remember when that became more and more clear to me. No longer, right? No longer. 
do I relate to those ideas and to that system the same way? That's what repentance produces. This is a great definition from Tim Keller. He says, the repentance that begins a new relationship with God is not primarily a matter of drawing up lists of specific sins you are sorry for and want to change. So there's nothing wrong with that. God might lead you to do that, and that would be fine. The repentance that really changes your heart and your relationship with God begins when you recognize that your main sin, the sin under the rest of your sins, is your self-salvation project. Spiritually, the main sin underneath your sin is when your salvation, even if you use it in a religious sense, your hope for a good future with God, whatever you determine that salvation to be, if that is based upon you and your activity, then it's a self-salvation project. And out of that, everything else in your life is flowing. See, if, if that's not the sin that gets repented of, well, you're probably more likely just into self-reform than you are conversion. You know, if you get around some religious people and some moral people that, you know, kind of they're not out smoking pot every weekend, and so you get around them, you start realizing, you know, I'm, I'm getting a little old for that. I need to kind of, I kind of probably need to be responsible, grow up, stop being a weed head. Um, say, yeah, yeah, you know, I'm not doing that kind of thing anymore. Okay, great. You, you put a list together and you found reasons in yourself to no longer do that. That's, that's self-reform. People do it all the time. It's not conversion. Conversion strikes at the heart of who you're trying to be and why you're trying to be it. If spiritually, you being a good person, you going to church, you maintaining some level of rules is giving you status before God, that's a self-salvation project. So we'll see at the end of this passage, you didn't need Christ to die for you to do that. People have been changing their lives for years. Christ didn't need to go to the cross for you to stop smoking pot. I'd put a gun to your head and make you stop. Jesus doesn't need to die for that. You can just have an allergic reaction to whatever drug you're taking, you'll stop doing it. You run out of money. I mean, something can change you besides the cross. So if Jesus goes to the cross and that's got anything to do with your change, what does it have to do with? Well, it has to do more with this, your self-salvation project. He says repentance then is confessing the things besides God himself that you have been relying on for your hope, your significance, and security. Right When you... When you are converted and you come to God, you relocate those things. No longer do I hope in my career and my money and whether I've been trained right and whether I've got enough personality. My future is no longer based in me. I've transferred my hope to God or my significance. No longer is my significance tied to my successes and my reputation. My significance in this world is now about the person of Christ and what he's done. It's a transference to those things to God. 
It's no longer finding my security and how much money do I have? I'm, I'm very concerned. I'm very afraid. I'm fearful about life because, you know, my job could change or my health is going down and I could lose my job and I don't have finances for the future. Is that where your security is? That's a self-salvation project. That's me depending upon my ability to provide for me. And God says, you know, conversion is you transferring that security to me. You put that security and your hope in, in me. I'll be there for you. I'm going to meet your needs. I'm the source of your life. I'm the center of your universe. See, no longer those things. Right? Okay, now when you look back, you turn around, you look back down your winding path. Do you find that landmark in your life? There's no longer. So it was a great word that for me captures this landmark this rock in my life that had the word surrender written on it. Remember, early in my Christian life, I was battling through how to just, how to walk out the aspects of my life and what got ministered to me is, Keith, you, you need to surrender to God. You know, it just made sense. Just, okay, God, stop contending. I'll stop managing. Your ideas don't need to compete with my ideas. So, Lord, I, I give up. I surrender to you. That's a landmark in a spiritual journey with God that every one of us should be able to look back and find. Look at this next landmark where he goes on and says, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Right? Part of this conversion was this, this unusual new life source dynamic. A new concept gets introduced in the scriptures. A new life to come live on the inside of who you and I are. That's a new concept. You know, I, I've been living in here all these years, but all of a sudden, by God's economy, there's going to be another living inside of me. Not just me anymore, but a new life is now come to live and reside in me. And Bible language is filled with this. John 14, 16. I will ask the Father, he will give you another helper to be with you forever. Even the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him for he dwells with you and will be in you. Like Romans 8 verse 9. You, however, are not in the flesh but in the spirit if in fact the spirit of God dwells in you, the Spirit of God, the, this is the personal presence, the person of God dwelling in you. Something dwelling in humanity, that's not new. I'm in here, and if you kind of get spiritual, you might get something else in there as well, right? I mean, in the spiritual world, there's, there's, there's uh, the circle of life out there, right, where everything's got some form of sort of energy, and we're all kind of borrowing energy from one another. And depending on what movie you go see, you kind of pick up on this thing, right? And the trees have life, and you've got life, and then, all, and it's, and then we all are discovering it's one common life. And so there is this life. You know, no, no, that, that's an impersonal force type thing. It's kind of a Star Wars-y kind of, you know, May the force be with you. The force. You know, what is that? Gelatin? Gel? What is the force? But whatever it is, it's with you. But it's not with you in a personal way because it's not a person. This is about a person. The person of God with his personality, 
with what makes him who he is, with his power, with his desires, with his plans. See, if it's just tree energy, you know, you know, everybody just borrows that. The tree borrows it to grow and sprout leaves and do its tree thing. I borrow it to be the best me I can possibly be. See, because energy is sort of neutral. As long as it's just not destroyed, it's just neutral. So the one thing we all got to do is hug the trees and be nice to everything because there's hidden energy in there and we need the energy. and We're all in this together. Right? That's, that's, that's just belief in an impersonal force. Now, now listen, it's easier to believe in that in one way because who knows what that force really wants? It's a force. It's like electricity. You know, you plug something into it. It flows into your toaster. It doesn't stop halfway through the cord and go, ah, I don't do toasters. No, no. I do dishwashers, vacuum. I do not do toasters. You know, electricity has no will. It's a force. It's in the walls. God, when he comes to live in us, he's got personality. He wants something. He has a plan. He comes with all that. So that's a little different consideration that he's coming to live in us. The born again language, it's all throughout scripture as a landmark. Jesus answered him in John 3, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. See, this, this is a landmark moment. When you look back down your spiritual journey, is there a, a boulder that says, born again? New life come to me. Conversion, the new life is what converts us. If you were to explode this moment of conversion, what you'd find is the reason why you and I changed is because a new life came into us. And in that moment, we became new creations, the Bible says. In that moment, we went from caterpillar to butterfly because of what God did to us with the effect of his life coming to us. We became butterflies. Now, now listen, that's a significant landmark because if you don't have that landmark here, well, here's what you have instead. If you're trying to play the Christian game, you got a book that teaches caterpillars how to act like butterflies. That's what you got. Welcome to the butterfly manual. You're not changed. You're the same as you ever were. There's nothing different about you. You're not converted. You haven't become something that you weren't. There's no new presence of life in you. But we all want you to fly now. Now, we knew before you crawled around on the ground, but now... We're all going to fly. Let's read about flying today. Well, you know, if you don't have any wings, you ain't flying. You're just reading about flying. And you're trying and trying and trying. You're living the most frustrating life you can possibly have. Because what looks like it comes natural never comes natural for you. This is, this is what Paul was truly getting at when he talked about dying. It was dying to the law. The context of Galatians chapter 2 is Paul saying, I've died to my performance that would make me acceptable to God. Instead, I've come alive, alive with a new life in me by the presence of God now. That's a totally different thing. 
Listen, if when you look back down your road and you find, yeah, I can remember a point when I wasn't going to church and I just decided, you know what, I need to get serious about going to church. I started going back to church and, you know, just a lot of things changed in my life. Okay, good. Were you converted, though, in that moment? Did the new life of God come into you? Or did you just decide to get more serious about the butterfly manual? And read more, and you were determined to work harder and to be a better butterfly, even though you hadn't been converted into a butterfly. That's a serious, serious landmark. Let me scoot through this last one here. He goes on and he says, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God. The life I now live. You know, in the Bible, you come across little, little words like that, that that are explosive. They're like, they're like landmines. When you step on them, they blow up thoughts that you had about your life. The life I now live. Well, Paul, what do you mean the life you now live as opposed to the life I used to live? See, in the Bible, everybody who has been converted has a before and after shot. There's a point in time, there's a point, there's a line that you pass from what you were to once, once you once were to what you now are. And all throughout the Bible, you find this language. You know, uh, Matt was quoting Ephesians chapter 2 earlier. Right? We once were dead in our trespasses. And then you read the rest of that long passage, but God made us alive. So what were you before, Keith? I was dead. See, how many recognize that spiritually there's a place in your life where you were not alive to God? Now, if I back my way into that subject and you kind of say, well, yeah, I guess so. What if I just didn't have this conversation with you yet and I just walked up to you and I said, so how long have you been a Christian? Would you answer that question by looking at me first like I had two heads and then answering by, how long have I been a Christian? I've always been a Christian. I'm serious. If I can make it a more obnoxious noise so you remember this point. No one has always been a Christian. I don't know. I want to say I don't know where that idea came from. I do know where it came from. I'm just trying to be nice. There's a line in which one becomes a Christian. Every person who is a Christian can say something about what they once were and what they are now. They cannot say, I just continue to be what I've always been. Well, then you're a caterpillar. Because that's what you were. And if there's never been a conversion moment in your life where you became something else, John chapter 1, verse 12. To as many as received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Become children of God? Well, aren't we all God's children? Well, in the Coke commercials, yeah. (laughs) We'd like to teach the world to sing. But, you know, everybody can't sing either. So there's a problem all over the place with that one. At some point, the Bible says, I was here and then I became child of God. How do you become a child? You get born. Wasn't that language we just looked at? Born again. You get a new life, new birth. The life of God has now come to you. You're a new person. 
different than you once were. The life I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God. I'm just looking at these last two components and and we're going to stop. Faith in the Son of God. The life I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God. Now, can I tell you, you can't have one without the other. Not in this spiritual journey. You can have it without the other in other spiritual journeys. But in the Christian spiritual journey, you cannot have one without the other. Faith in the Son of God. Faith is more than what I had growing up. I I had some form of belief that allowed me to acknowledge the existence of God. It sounds like what the Apostle Paul had when he was persecuting and opposing Christians. Paul, do you believe in God? Well, yeah, of course. I'm a Jew from the strictest sense. Of course I believe in God. Okay, well, that was me. Strictly religious, quote, believing in God. That was not faith. It was more like mental acceptance of some ideas. It was not faith. To put your faith in Christ is more than just to be aware of the storyline and to acknowledge that that's probably the true storyline. That's not faith. Faith means to invest yourself in, to take your whole life and to rely upon Christ, to, to hope in him for your life and for your acceptance before God. That's what faith is. But that acceptance gets accomplished by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. That's what Paul directs our faith to. Faith has to have an object. Now, in an age of spirituality where everybody's on a spiritual journey, faith doesn't, it's almost like it doesn't matter whether you have an object to your faith, it just matters whether you have faith. Can I say that's backwards? It doesn't matter if you have faith, if you have faith in the wrong thing, right? No matter how strong your faith is, In the wrong thing, it doesn't matter what you believe now. It doesn't matter how strong you believe it. The idea that it just matters if you're sincerely convinced and you really believe that. Just being convinced to have spirituality. I'm a very spiritual person. What do you believe in? Well, you're not going to believe that all religions are right in some way or another. That's not Paul's landmark. Not even believe us in some kind of a Jesus figure. People, a lot of people believe in Jesus. They just don't believe accurately in him. Right? And typically we tend to, to make that Jesus look a lot like us. He's kind of into our social causes, kind of accepts the things that we're into. Right? Elton John says, I think Jesus was a compassionate, super intelligent gay man who understood human problems. He even, he even has a theology of the cross. On the cross... He forgave the people who crucified him. Christ wanted us to be loving and forgiving. Now, in that little statement right there, you learned a lot about Elton John. You didn't learn anything about Christ. Well, he went to the cross, and well, yeah, he did go to the cross. And he forgave the people who put him on the cross, right? Uh, Yes, but then you misapplied his life. And Jesus wants us to be loving and forgiving too. So what's the point of Jesus' life? Well, he was an example of what we're supposed to try and be like. No. He's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He wasn't on that cross saying, Father, I forgive them. Elton, he was on the cross dealing with your sin. So now that makes it a little more uncomfortable, doesn't it? 
wasn't just a, a great human being with an example of forgiving those who have done you wrong. He was taking my place. Paul said, my faith is in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. That's ransom language. He, he stood in my place. He gave himself for me. He was a substitution for me. I should have taken the blame and the punishment for the sins in my life. He stood in my place. He stood in Paul's place. And Paul now has put his faith in the person and the work of Christ. That's what faith is directed towards. If it's directed anywhere else, if you look back down your spiritual journey and you find your faith goes anywhere else but there, then you have to deal with this last phrase here. Verse 21. I do not nullify the grace of God. For if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. Righteousness through the law, what does that mean? It means if there was a series of rules that humanity could keep that would cause God to say, you are now acceptable to me, then Christ's death is meaningless. Now, Paul's language in, in this letter is severe, and it's intentionally severe. Because sometimes we approach our religious journey as though Christianity is fine for some and something else is fine for others. But you do realize when you do that, you bump headlong into this passage. Believing in a God who unnecessarily crucified his own son when he didn't have to do that. What kind of God is that? Takes his son, his perfect son, and puts him in the form of a man so that all the sin of the universe could be laid upon him and God's judgment poured out upon him. And not just the physical grueling death that he underwent, but the, the unseen mystery of what it must have felt like to have the judgment of God poured out on you. When all man had to do was be told, keep some rules over here and lead a better life and you'll be fine. If righteousness comes by the law, whatever law you create, then listen, Christianity is stupid. <laughs> I don't know what else to call it. Please don't call it a good idea. It's downright stupid. You mean I, I can get to heaven by just walking up this set of stairs over here. Yeah. But, you know, if you don't want to walk the stairs, I'll go ahead and kill my son for you. What? You only do stuff like that if there's no other way. That's what makes Christianity unique. Because it doesn't come along and say, hey, welcome to the spiritual journey convention. Uh, we're just one booth among many. And, you know, we hope some of y'all will come visit our booth. And uh, there's a lot of great booths here. Christianity stands up and says, uh, there's no other way. And it only makes sense if God crushed his son. There couldn't have been another way. So when I, I look down the path of my spiritual journey, and you look for landmarks in your journey, do your landmarks sound like these? They sound like Paul's landmarks? Do they sound like what he experienced 
in becoming a Christian and in walking as a Christian? Listen, maybe you're, maybe you're here this morning and You're questioning whether you're on the right spiritual path. You're not, you're not quite sure much of what you've heard today with some things that you knew before, but, but there's a place right now that you're saying, okay, well, what do I do? How do I come to a place of getting on God's path? Well, we do that by faith. We receive the Son of God into our life by faith. And in that moment, just like I walked up, stood in a church, put my faith and my hope in God. I didn't know everything. I couldn't have written an apologetics book. I didn't have all the answers for humanity in that moment. But I put my faith in the Son of God. And in that moment, God came and converted my life and brought me down a path that changed everything about who I was and continues to do that. As as Matt comes and we're going to close, let me just read this thought to you about faith very helpful from Tim Keller. He says, the faith that changes the life and connects to God is best conveyed by the word trust. Imagine you are on a high cliff and you lose your footing and begin to fall. Just beside you as you fall is a branch sticking out of the very edge of the cliff. It is your only hope and it is more than strong enough to support your weight. How can it save you? If your mind is filled with intellectual certainty that the branch can support you, but you don't actually reach out and grab it, you are lost. If your mind is instead filled with doubts and uncertainty that the branch can hold you, but you reach out and grab it anyway, you will be saved. Why? It's not the strength of your faith, but the object of your faith that actually saves you. Strong faith in a weak branch is fatally inferior to weak faith in a strong branch. This means you don't have to wait for all doubts and fears to go away to take hold of Christ. Don't make the mistake of thinking that you have to banish all misgivings in order to meet God. It is not the depth and purity of your heart, but the work of Jesus Christ on your behalf that saves you. Faith, then, begins as you recognize and reject your alternative trusts and gods and turn instead to the Father, asking for a relationship to him on the basis of what Jesus has done, not on the basis of your moral effort or achievement. Let's stand up together. Lord, thank you for this moment this morning to hear your word, to hear you describe the spiritual journey, to see landmarks along the way. Lord, I I pray this morning that you have helped us to see the landmarks on our own journey. Lord, whether or not our journey sounds like the one you describe in your word. Lord, help us this morning. Lord, help some who may be here, maybe like I was, maybe like the Apostle Paul, filled with religious information, but cannot talk about conversion, don't know about your life coming to live and dwell in us, can't look back on things that are no longer who I once was. 
Lord, this morning, all that can change. In a moment, all that can change. So just bow on your head and pray. And in just a moment, Matt's going to lead us in a song. If you're here this morning, though, and you, you don't remember conversion coming into your life, you don't remember that point where God came in and began to work in your life. Well, this morning, I want to give you the opportunity. I want to give you the privilege of responding to God as I had the privilege to do in February of 1979. I want to give you the privilege of, of walking forward. And as we sing this song, I want to invite a couple of folks just to come pray with you. That's what happened to me. I'm so grateful for that day. I'm so grateful for the moment when God moved on my heart and I knew I needed more than what I had in my religion. I needed to be converted. And I prayed a simple prayer and God did a profound thing as we're singing this song, if that's you, and you'd like somebody to pray for you in that way, I just want you to come forward. Just come find a place just to stand right here, and somebody's just going to come walk up to you and pray with you in that category. If you want to come, come. Lord, I thank you that there are some here this morning that you ordained this morning. This is a moment on the calendar for you to encounter them. The same way in which Paul said, I was on the road to Damascus when God showed up and revealed himself to me. Lord, thank you that this morning is a morning where you are revealing yourself to some here this morning. God, I pray that you'd give them a responsive heart to say, this morning, God, change my life. Come into my life today. Lord, I want to walk the path that you have ordained for me. I want to live the life you've called me to live. If that's you this morning, go ahead and come up. While the song's playing, there'll be some guys that'll come join you down here and pray. But don't miss a chance this morning to do what you'll remember. Apostle Paul, look back on that day. I'm still looking back on that day. You will look back on this day that God came and changed your life forever.